Thank you. Good morning. Well, this is the last message, and in the beginning, our series in Genesis, we're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Turn to Genesis chapter 11. But we're going to reach back a little and look at uh, chapter 9, a little at chapter 10. We'll be in chapter 11, and then also a little in chapter 12 as we bring this to a close. Let me read from... uh, chapter 11, starting with verse 1. By the way, I think it's fitting that it's name tag Sunday because the emphasis is on making a name for ourselves in chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do or purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Well, what's in a name? Do you know who I am? See if you can figure out from this quote. I was born with a name that just sort of worked for me. It worked on buildings. It's concise. It's a winning card. And I was able to take the name and do very important things with it. If my name was Joe Blow, it just wouldn't have played the same way that does. Well, if you guessed Trump... You'd be right. And you know Donald Trump has made a name for himself. I remember back in season four, that was 2005, we were in 1 John, and titled this series, uh, The Apprentice. Donald Trump has his own show. And I'm not going to talk about all the ins and outs of the show, but teams can win awards. And I remember... That year, they had some incredible rewards if your team happened to to win. um, Hockey with the New York Islanders. I mean, you got to have some pull for your show's weekly team winners to play with the New York Islanders. Baseball with the New York Mets. Private jet to a fishing excursion. And then dinner on the beach. A shopping spree to an exclusive designer, a favorite of the stars, 
horseback riding in Central Park and dinner with Shania Twain. But the reward that sticks out to me was when Donald Trump, I mean, ranked right up there with these other rewards, Donald Trump for the winning team takes him up in his private helicopter and for the next 30 minutes points out to the team, the winning team, as well as the viewers, all of the towers that bear his name that he's built. That's the Trump name. In 1983, a New York Times article was titled, The Empire and Ego of Donald Trump. Not all of us can have the name Trump. Some of us have the name Wiener. As in New York City Congressman Anthony Wiener. Both are from New York. Both have made a name for themselves. And no matter where these men rank on your ick scale, there's a bit of Trump and a bit of wiener in all of us. We all want to make a name for ourselves, don't we? The question is, how do you do it? Well, the world has one answer, and there are a slew of books out there. In fact, I googled the books that Donald Trump has written or co-written. There are a lot more than I thought there were. I knew that there was uh, The Art of the Deal, and there are a number of them that begin with the name Trump. There's the Midas Touch, among others. But the book that I'm interested in, the book that I think has the answer for us, is the book, the Bible. And according to the book, the way to make a name for yourself comes automatically when you put the name of the Lord ahead of your own name. When you make your name by making a name for God. And that comes through faith. That comes by putting Him first in your life and trusting Him to make a name for yourself. But putting God ahead of yourself, putting His name ahead of the making of your own name, does not come naturally. In fact, you may recall after Noah and his family left the ark, Noah built an altar immediately and made sacrifice unto the Lord. And it was then that we were introduced to the very reflection of God as the savor and the scent of that sacrifice came up to him. And he said at that time, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I'm reminded as a young kid, and I guess it's fitting since Daniel talked to us about men's softball, I wanted to be a great baseball player. I used to practice in the backyard, throwing a ball in the air with my cap on, bat in hand, swinging that bat to strike that ball. I was reminded of that because I heard a story about a young, young boy who had his cap on, bat in hand, threw the ball into the air and said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world, and swung at the ball and missed. But he wasn't daunted by that. 
He picked the ball up, lobbed it in the air and said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world and swung again and missed. This time he picked up the ball and he examined it carefully, checked the bat, spit in his hands, rubbed them together, tossed the ball in the air and said, I'm the greatest hitter in the world and swung and missed. Wow, he said. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. <laughs> we all want a great name, one way or another. God will give you a great name. A name stands for fame in this passage when they seek a great name for themselves. God will give you a great name if you put your trust in Him, if you put His name ahead of your name. Now to show you from this passage, I have to make the case briefly. So for just a moment, I want us to go back to chapter 9, verses 25, 6, and 7. You recall last Sunday that it was Shem and his brother Japha that withstood Ham. Ham shamed Noah. But the sons protected his name, protected his honor. And Noah blessed Shem. In fact, he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord, the God of Shem. And then he blessed Japheth. And he said that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. And in both blessings, the curse of verse 25 is, so to speak, recited again. That Ham will serve his brothers. A slave of slaves. So you have a structure of the people under Shem. Is that clear? Then in chapter 10, you have what's sometimes conveniently referred as the table of nations. But the brothers, the lines of the brothers, are pursued throughout chapter 10. Each brother. Starting with Japheth, then Ham, then Shem. Now if we look at this just briefly on the screen behind me, you see the line of Japheth is verses 2 through 5, Ham verses 6 through 20, largely because verses 8 through 12 of the line of Ham is taken up with the line of Nimrod. And by the way, it explains the empire of Nimrod. And it mentions that the beginning of his empire is in Babel, which is sometimes to us initially confusing. It doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it quite plainly states that the beginning of his empire is in Babel. It doesn't mean that he began it. It might mean that he was there and built out of, so to speak, the events that transpired in Babel. But I have something more to say about that in just a moment. 
And then the last line is Shem, verses 21 through 31. And I have given you here the summary. Each line, the line of each son is projected, so to speak, or recounted as we look into the future through chapter 10. And each one is summarized in verse 5, in verse 20, and in verse 31. And I've summarized what is said about each line. Uh, They're separated or spread would be the better word of verse 5 to lands, language, families, NIV says clans, and nations. Each one. What we have pictured for us in chapter 10 is a look into the future as the lines of these three sons are run out, so to speak. And what we see is diversity of lands, families, languages, nations. Now, that's confusing because the event that creates this variation, these differences doesn't come until chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, the building of the city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, I want to try and help us to understand this really clearly because there's a play on the name of Shem. Shem, more precisely pronounced shame, means name. Shame means name. And of course, in chapter 11, the people seek a shame, a name for themselves. And to run this out even further, when we get to chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 and verse 2, God calls Abraham out. And he says, Abraham... Obey me, follow me, trust me, and I will bless you with a great name. A shame. A great name. Now here's what I want you to see. If we start in the left column, you'll notice the name Eber. A son of shame. In chapter 10, verse 24, we come to Eber. And then we're told he had two sons. Peleg and Joktan. You see that? And you can look at it in your Bible in chapter 10, verse 24-25. We're told as soon as Peleg is introduced that it was in the days of Peleg that the earth was divided. It's not talking about the physical earth. It's talking about the earth of peoples. In other words, the peoples were divided. And... If you look at the very first verse of chapter 11, it says that the whole earth was gathered together in Shiner, in one language, one tongue. The whole earth is not the literal earth, it's the earth of peoples. In other words, all the peoples. But back in the introduction of Peleg, it says, in his days the earth was divided. This word divided only occurs, this verb, only four times. Twice it's used of the very line of Peleg. In other words, the very words here in chapter 10, 
Verse 24 and 25 dealing with Peleg in the days of Peleg. That's reproduced in Chronicles. And then it occurs one other time in Job. And one other time in Psalm 55 verse 9. Where David, talking about the city of people opposed him, he says, God divide their tongues. Now here's what I really need you to see. After Peleg, we're not told of his line at all. He takes up Joktan, and he runs the line of Joktan to the end of chapter 10. Then in chapter 11, which is where we are today, verses 1 through 9, we have the story of all the tribes, all the peoples, one language, one tongue, in the valley of Shinar. We're going to look at that briefly in just a moment. Verse 10, we resume with Eber... And the line of Peleg is then extended. In other words, the line of Peleg is taken up after the events in Babylon. And it leads right to Abraham. So you have all the peoples, all the brothers, structured under shame in chapter 9. 25, 6, and 7. Then in chapter 10 we have a, a kind of a foretelling of what happens to the families in terms of the lines. And they're introduced in terms of nations and tongues. It's like the effect precedes the cause. And that's exactly what's happened. It's thematic rather than chronological. And in fact, it gives impact to what we read in chapter 11 because in chapter 11 we're given the cause for all of this diversity of tongues, nations, and families. Does that make sense? And the thing that's very clear is shame, his, na- his line is taken up at the end of chapter 10. The line of Peleg, his son, is interrupted at verse 25. Joktons is completed to the end of chapter 10. And then, in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided, and then we have Peleg's line, starting at verse 10, through Eber, the two sons, Peleg, running right to Abraham, because Abraham is a descendant of Peleg. And then the name is established. The name that we're supposed to, to have. The name that God creates when we put Him first and put His name ahead of our name. I hope that's clear. Because if it isn't, then my sermon is in shambles. (laughs) Verse 4 of chapter 11, they want to make a name for themselves. I think it was Max Lucado who called this the Climb to Heaven campaign. And the minutes of the planning committee read as follows in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Here we get a sense of the scale of their ambition. The name and its scale is as big as a tower touching heaven. This expression, make a name, I don't think it's uncommon to us 
you'd think it would be common in the Old Testament. The word name is, is very common. The name shame. But to make a name is not so common. It's used of the king. It's used of the Lord God, especially in the deliverance of his people from Egypt. In the mighty wonders that he performed, he makes a name for himself. And the only other that it's used of is right here, of those who would build a city and a tower reaching to heaven. In verse 6 and 7, ironically, God comes down. Just as they ascend, they are ascending, God has to descend to see what they are doing. It's pretty ironic. God has to come down to see the pathetic little tower and city that they're building. That's the Scripture's perspective on their aspirations and ambition. That's telling, I think. Because if we have no way of gauging what we're doing, we can seek to ascend in such a way that we think that we're achieving and aspiring to what our ambition seeks is bigger and more important than anyone else or anything else. God gives us a perspective, a sobering perspective on our own pursuits. They're puny. They're pathetic in comparison. But notice what God says in verse 6. And this should be underscored. This is only the beginning of what they will do. And then we read, nothing which they purpose or plan will be impossible for them. Here is the autonomy the absolute autonomy of mankind. Autonomy meaning in need of no one or nothing else. And what is striking about this is it has echoes of chapter 3, verse 5, where the serpent tempted Eve, become like God. The prophet Isaiah addressing this same kind ambition in chapter 14 verses 13 and 14 the, the desire is to become like the most high I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks I'm going to become like God but we do ever so subtly through preoccupation and self-absorption we do supplant, we usurp, we take the place of God. And we think that nothing can stop us. And that's the kind of chutzpah, the kind of arrogance that God in His reflection in chapter 6 identifies. Nothing 
which they purpose will be impossible for them. And so he intervenes and he scrambles their language. And of course, we already have a forecast of this. This is, I think, the strategy and the genius of Genesis because we've just, well, maybe you haven't, but I did. I labored through chapter 10 looking at all this diversity, all these peoples, all these nations, and now you realize that it was through the arrogance of the people and God's intervention that He put them in their place by scrambling their language. Now, we were away at uh, Eric Putman's wedding this weekend, and you get out and you eat in a restaurant, and I just noticed... And you know, I, I have a smartphone myself, and I can, it's like a little computer, and I can get on the web and check facts and things like that. And I guess people are just, they're all on their little smartphones. And, and they pop up in church. You, don't you hear them every once in a while going off? And they're, they're everywhere. Sometimes you can see a whole family looking at their smartphones. And then we have our computers, and we have our Xboxes, and we, we have all our gadgets. God could scramble the whole thing if something happened to our electricity. Our sense of power and identity that we've associated with these, these things that seem so important to us, so significant, would be about as good as the charge on our battery without electricity. I mean, when you look at it that way, it just reminds us, doesn't it, how truly weak we really are. All the things that preoccupy us through television and, and the media, the things that create community, this false sense of community that takes the place of real community, could all be gone like that without a constant resource of power which we know as electricity. Well, important for us to understand to really put this in perspective is Job 42.2. You might think, well, how did we get to Job 42.2? Well, it's really important to understanding Genesis 11.6 because this word impossible only occurs in a couple of places in the Hebrew language. And in Job 42.2, and this is at the end of, a, of God's address to Job, He's kind of led Job through an awakening I think it's pretty cathartic for Job. In fact, Job concludes before in verse 5, he says, I only knew you through the sense of my hearing. And I think a lot of us can identify with that. Some of us could say, well, I know God. I, I hear a lot about God. I come to church on Sundays, or I have friends that talk about God, or I go to church every week and I hear about God. Job knew a lot about God. 
But in this awakening, he says, I see you with my own eye. And what is it that he's discovered? He says in verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is the very word that's used back in chapter 11, verse 6, when God looked at the people all massed together, building this grand city and this tower that would touch heaven. And he says, with all this one purpose, one language, nothing they do can be thwarted. We will be like God. Well, they didn't say that. But that's what it amounted to. We don't need God. No recognition of God. No place for God. No sense that God alone can do all things. No, now they aspire. And after this gentle tongue lashing from God that runs for about three chapters at the end of Job, he says, now I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God has put Job in his place. And Job now acknowledges God for the reality of what he is. God! And here's a powerful thought. This is true praise of God that Job utters. You alone. You alone. Now I know. Not just by hearing, but with my own eye. I know you are God. And you alone. You alone can do all that you purpose. That's praise that should be upon all of our lips. But that's not on the lips of the people gathered in the valley of Shinar building a grand city with a tower to heaven. They have turned God's praise on its head. Their praise is we can do all that we purpose. And God sees that. And He says, I'm going to take their electricity away. I'm going to take their smartphones and their computers and all their gadgets and all the things that they use. Back then, it was brick making. Seems like such a small and minor thing. But unless they had... Where do you find rock in the Valley of Shinar? This was a great advance, being able to make bricks. Bricks with tar. No kidding, in the history of civilization, this was a huge advance. They could make great buildings out of earth that wouldn't succumb to the rains and to the elements. And God says, well, let's just see how well you can work together if you can't speak the same language. And pride, ambition, as we see here illustrated, and also from Job, it turns praise to presumption. What should be God's praise? A constant acknowledgement that you alone are God. For you are different 
greater, more majestic than I. I need you, God. That needs to be the beginning point of humility. What's the ceiling on our ambition? In just a practical sense. I am not perfect. I, thinking of Noah exposed in his own tent. I really, I, I really do think that any one of us, boy, if a camera was put on us at a certain point in time, it would, we, it would just be, it would just strip us of our pride, our sense of glory, our good name. If people could see our thoughts, see us when we're angry, if the world was put in judgment upon our behavior, actions, and ideas. I, I, I work through this myself, constantly thinking, Lord, I, I would always want to have a heart of repentance. You know, I always want to be of the heart that would say, I blew that. I did the wrong thing. I'd tell it like it is no matter what the wreckage or outcome, and say, I, I, I'm not going to give you up. Sometimes God does have to humble us to make us dependent upon Him. But I see people, people that name the name of Jesus Christ, people that are in church day in and day out. I've seen this in some 37 years of ministry. Something gets a hold of them. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's that midlife crisis or something else. But they, they actually get a bead on becoming someone or something or getting something that maybe, maybe they thought was unattainable. And all of a sudden, they, in effect, renounce the name of God. Do you know that a pastor has no authority? I don't. I guess I feel so dependent on the Word because this is where the authority is. It's, it's only of consent. If you consent to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life and, and you hear me showing you what that's going to look like for us, then you'll consent to take to heart things that I have to share. But if in your life at some point you say, that's it, boy, I'm going, going my way and I'm leaving God behind, that's a, that's a tower-building moment. That's a tower-building moment when we say, I'm not going to trust you. I'm going to do things my way. Even if it calls me into conflict with your word. Or things that at one time I professed with my mouth and my lips. I've seen this happen in, in marital affairs. A range of things. Perhaps in small ways, you can see it even in your own life without somebody needing to put a magnifying glass on us. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. I mean, what's echoing in the reader's ears if you've read from chapter 9 straight through to this point? 
All the ways in which people have become these great nations. But God says, follow me, Abraham. And in effect, you can almost hear the words of Jesus. Follow me. Die to yourself, and I'll show you real life. That's the message again and again in the New Testament. Die to yourself. Put your name behind my name. Put your name into honoring my name. Put your name into living for my name. And I will give you a name, a real name, a bona fide name. Step out and in faith, in risk. Because faith does involve risk. If you think that expressing your faith in God does not involve risk, then you're going to be confounded from the starting. If you think it's going to be easy, you're going to be confounded. It's not going to compute. But emotionally, you have to realize that to step out and trust the Lord will involve a sense of personal risk when you're calculating from an earthling and earthly standpoint. Faith has to look above and beyond that and to trust that if I walk in faith, He will prove Himself faithful to me. And that's what He's saying to Abraham. Jesus talked about this when He asked these uh, commoners to follow Him. When He told them, He said... uh, Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Uh, In John chapter 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, it will not bear fruit. Paul picks up the same theme again and again. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, it's all of nothing. My, my name, my background, my accomplishments. In chapter 12 of Romans, he says, make yourself a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I die to myself. The life I live now, I live through Jesus Christ. But sometimes within the church, and I'm including myself here, kind of like in the movies or in stories that sometimes hit the news where a person fakes their own death. Sometimes I think we become proficient at faking our death so that we can live that life, you know, that other life. And that's a constant challenge because God is constantly calling us to step out of our comfort zone and trust Him. Will you stand with me? I don't know what it is that you are facing. What you are facing may seem tame compared to what others see themselves as facing. Whatever it is, whether you think it's small or great, Today is a day of challenge from God. When He says, learn from this history, this episode. Trust me. Walk with me. Live for me. Try it my way. 
Don't rely on yourself. Don't do it the way you've always learned to do it. Step out of your comfort zone and trust me. Learn of me. And the beautiful thing is your faith will grow as God proves himself faithful to you. And you'll find it easier and easier to walk with him than you do walking with the world. And I pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, these things are so practical and yet uh, it really is swimming against the stream. It's everything around us in this world is about making a name for ourselves. Making a name after your name is a real step of faith. Thank you for this incentive, this encouragement from your word. We pray that in our own way, we might take a step today in your direction, walking with you, and through it, magnify your name. It is because of you that we truly have life. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.